Good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition, <clears throat> live again tonight, because the communications gods are obviously smiling, on the other side of midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, when almost anything can happen. And then we, of course, talk about it here. And as I've said so many times now, what used to be reserved for this time of night and morning seems to be taking place all over the world 24-7. I'm really intrigued. There are many uh, uh, network people, remember I used to work for one of them, uh, who sign off these days saying, thank you for staying with us in these extraordinary times. It's like they've even kind of notice that we're living in extraordinary times. And uh, that's kind of like what we're going to talk about this morning, because the extraordinary times include uh, a very ancient ritual, which was carried out uh, a couple weeks ago, which is the coronation of King Charles III, i.e. our familiar uh, son of Queen Elizabeth, Uh, The second, um, Prince Charles, who became with great pomp and circumstance and ceremony uh, King of England. And as I said in our banner, um, as you're going to hear tonight, there is really legitimate reason to wonder whether in fact Charles could be the last King of England. In fact, whether Charles could be the last monarch of England. And uh, as my grandmother would have said, thereby hangs an extraordinary tale. So before we get into all that, uh, for those of you who are new to the show, we have a section of the website, uh, if you're listening on the other side of midnight.com, or if you're listening on the radio or you're listening on, on your gadgets or devices or you know whatever, um, called Radio with Pictures. So let me tell you how to get to it because we have visuals. We have stories, we have connective tissue, we have background reference material. Uh, you don't have to look at it in real time. You can wait until the archive or the replay or when you maybe want to listen to the show again. But we do have background material so that you can kind of go beyond the three hours that we spend with you uh, on Saturdays and Sunday nights. Item number one, um, probably the biggest crisis that we face, and I don't want to kind of leave the show with crises, but in this case, we kind of have to, is something which I think because it involves finances and money and banks and debt and accountants and economists, you know, most people's eyes just kind of glaze over when the subject of finances comes up, except, of course, if it's uh, their own. We're talking this several weeks now, from now basically through June 1st, about something called the debt ceiling. Now, given that the Speaker of the House and the President of the United States are not in sync on this, even tonight, um, the President, uh, according to the story, which is item number one, uh, you go to the, uh, you click on tonight's show banner, which is all about King Charles, very regal looking photograph there of, of the King. You click on that, that will take you to the guest page. And then under the guest page, it says to listen to the show. And then under that, it says guest page and my name under a section called Fast Links. Click on my name. That will take you to my section of Radio with Pictures. Item number one, this is a story out of NBC, which basically says that uh, the um, conversations over the debt ceiling are going to resume tomorrow. President will be back in town from his uh, G7 meeting in Japan in, of all places, Hiroshima. And he and the Speaker of the House are going to uh, get together and discuss this very misunderstood concept of the debt ceiling. It has nothing to do with future monies or future stuff. It's about paying your debts. And we might, because it's going to come to a head Uh, next weekend, we might actually be doing a show on this. Uh, uh, I will inform everyone and you just keep looking at the website and you will see banners and promos and all that to that effect if we, in fact, get the right people to come together to do that kind of show. 
The reason this is falls under the aegis of extraordinary times is because in 250 years, give or take, the United States has never defaulted on its debt. And the Republicans in the House of Representatives seem adamant this time, at least a minority, to have us fall over the cliff. No one nowhere that I have seen is described in any detail the absolutely catastrophic global events which would ensue if the United States of America decided formally through congressional inaction not to pay its debts. It would be the equivalent, as I alluded to last night, of detonating a tactical nuclear weapon in Washington, D.C., because you might think if you're in California that destroying Washington would have no effect on your life. You would be wrong. And I'm hoping, really hoping, that someone somewhere will put together the right set of, of uh, information and lay out to the American people, both Republicans and Democrats, exactly why we cannot be allowed to default on the debt of the United States, given that the uh, dollar is the reserve currency of the world. And all those terms like currency and reserve and debt ceiling and all that, all that's so arcane to most people, their eyes, back to my grandmother, just glaze over. This is equivalent to a limited nuclear war if it were to take place. So it cannot be allowed to take place. How this administration is going to avoid the catastrophic pitfall of not paying the debts of the United States per the 14th Amendment, the, the debt and credit of the United States shall not be questioned, that is going to be potentially a topic for next uh, Saturday and or Sunday. I haven't decided yet because part of that depends on people's availability and time. And Anyway, um, we need to keep an eye on this because if you want to transform Earth into a um, science fiction post-apocalyptic world without firing a shot, this is the quickest way to do it. Which, of course, kind of raises my conspiratorial bump, wondering if someone, in fact, wants us to do this unthinkable thing, which will plunge the planet into such heartache and such catastrophe at so many different levels of society and so many different nations and world organizations and order and the way things normally are supposed to run that it's maybe the reason why no one's really explained it is because it's almost unexplainable it's so awful it's so catastrophic so moving on tonight we're going to talk about monarchy not just the monarchy of great britain but I found a remarkable piece on uh, Pocket um, called It's Not Just Britain Where Monarchy Survives. This is a list, item number two, um, of all of the places on Earth currently still performing a monarchical, let me say that again, monarchical, say that quickly with, with three whiskeys, a monarchical form of government, i.e. not a republic, not a democracy, but someone in charge who has um, family and hereditary ties to being in charge. Now, is that any way to pick leadership? Well, of course not. Um, but history has shown that over 99.99% of known human history, monarchies, kingdoms, autocrats, dictators, tyrants, whatever you want to call them, they have been the norm. Remember, we're the great experiment. And we're kind of, you know, hanging 10 over the edge of the board here. And the one real test is going to be this coming deadline, you know, within a day or so of June 1st, when we must pay our debts or horrible, and I really mean horrible things, will happen to everyone, not just the elites, not just the elected leadership, not just people, you know, sitting in state houses or sitting in the Congress, but everyone 
from dog catchers to airline pilots to doctors, housewives, kids going to school, and most important, everyone receiving a check for Social Security. If we do not pay our debts, that means the government, by law, cannot pay you, which means that source of critical funding for you instantly goes away. Does that make it catastrophic enough? Anyway, a story in progress to be completed in the next couple weeks. Stay tuned. Another thing that happened uh, this afternoon, we now have uh, two private citizens, two Saudis, uh, en route to the International Space Station, courtesy of SpaceX and Axiom Space, which is a private enterprise space company based in Houston and staffed by a lot of uh, former NASA people. And they sent uh, Peggy Whitson, she's the commander. She is an incredibly prolific and uh, uh, well-backgrounded astronaut who has had, among other things, something like 60 hours of EVA time. Can you imagine spending 60 hours cumulative over 10 spacewalks in a spacesuit outside above the Earth in a vacuum looking at that stunning, incredibly transformative scene of the Earth passing by below you while you're working on the station in orbit? That's Peggy Whitson. And anyway, she's commander of the second private enterprise flight uh, in the Dragon spacecraft named Freedom to the International Space Station where they're going to spend about 10 days. Uh, This is all in preparation for, excuse me, commercial spinoffs of the space station, which will ultimately wind up with uh, zero-gravity hotels and restaurants and tourism. And anyway, the future appears terms of private space development to be great as long as you do not try to get anywhere near the moon. By the way, apropos of last night and specifically directed to one of my guests tonight, again, Robert Morningstar, um, after we all got through with the show last night and I went upstairs and had a bite to eat and could do a little research, you know, my internet is back, Um, I found out that the Japanese Hakato mission and Hakato, which is the name of the Japanese lander on the 25th of April on my birthday that was supposed to be the first successful private landing of a robot on the moon, uh, it turned out that Hakato, the name of the Japanese uh, lander spacecraft, means bunny, rabbit in Japanese. Now wait a minute. There's there's, there's 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 a trend curve here, because the Chinese have sent two rabbits, Jade Rabbit One and Jade Rabbit Two, as rovers on the Chang missions, named after the Chinese goddess of the moon, who had a big pet rabbit. Except he wasn't named Harvey. He was named uh, Jade. Well, it turns out that the Japanese decided for rather intriguing reasons, out of all the possible names they could have attached to a spacecraft that they were going to try to land on the moon first, it, by the way, crashed, if you weren't listening last night, this is like two or three weeks ago, Um, they decided to name that mission Rabbit. What is it about rabbits and the moon? A... um, conundrum to be explored in future programs. Finally, number four. Uh, We're going to be talking about the coronation. We're going to be talking about why King Charles III could in fact legitimately be illegitimate. Does that make sense? Barbara Honiger has got some extraordinary research backed up by some things that Georgia uh, Lambert's going to add in the third hour. And there will be plenty of commentary and discussion and back and forth among the other panelists we have tonight uh, regarding the legitimacy of the swearing-in 
or the coronation, to use a more monarchical term, of the, the, the third Charles of England, because it looks like, from all evidence we can, we can ascertain, and Barbara will go into great detail, <clears throat> that the literal foundation on which the uh, royalty and the reign of King Charles III will rest is a fake. It's a counterfeit. It's not real. Which, of course, under the ritual of coronation of kings and queens and monarchs, brings into serious question the legitimacy of King Charles III to the very bottom of his throne. And what can that mean or portend for the future? Well, remember back when Queen Elizabeth suddenly died and King, uh, uh, King, and Charles automatically became king prior to obviously the formalization through the coronation ritual. One of the things that I went out on a limb and kind of forecast, which is very dangerous these days in any business, but certainly in this business, is that at some point, Charles could become deeply embroiled or maybe involved in the leadership of the movement toward disclosure of our ET family, our companions, the visitors, the larger realm, the galaxy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I kind of said, not, not you know, tongue in cheek, who better? Because of course, the very concept of monarchy of an authoritarian ruler who rules by the divine rights of the gods upstairs is the idea way back in uh, Sumerian literature times, Gilgamesh et al., that kingship was lowered from heaven. So who better to intercede with heaven, i.e. extraterrestrials, on behalf of the human family than someone who is heading a leading monarchy on planet Earth tonight. That was, that was kind of like my thesis for why we should kind of be intrigued uh, even now when the majority of the British public apparently don't seem to give a damn, according to some information that Barbara's going to give us uh, about the monarchy. Why should we? Because it may be that politically strategic avenue between knowing nothing about what's really going on out there and finally being included in the larger galactic family. And it's way overdue. Well, anyway, apropos of that model, that idea, that projection of why we should kind of be looking at the British monarchy and at King Charles, item number four popped up. This is from the Mirror. A UFO was spotted flying over the coronation as a mysterious red tetrahedral-shaped object kind of interweaving with a whole bunch of British uh, jet fighters that did a flyover during the rainy afternoon when the coronation procession was being held. And item number four is the story from the mirror <clears throat> with a photograph of this very bizarre UFO spotted over the coronation. Almost like someone somewhere is saying, you know that Hoagland, he made me onto something, pay attention. Anyway, let, be that as it may, let me introduce our, our first panelist and our, in fact, I'm gonna introduce all our guests and then I'm gonna ask Barbara to, to start first because she has amassed some fascinating information which goes to the heart of the whole idea, is the current king of Britain, Great Britain, England, is he legitimate? Barbara Honiger uh, has served as a high-level government uh, official, including as a White House policy analyst, special assistant to the president for domestic policy, director of the attorney general's law review at the Department of Justice, and uh, this all took place, of course, during the Reagan administration. For more than a decade, she was also the senior military affairs journalist at the Naval Postgraduate School, the premier science, technology, and national securities affair research university of the Department of Defense. 
She is co-chairman of the board of investigative researcher and an investigative researcher with the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. Since September 11th, she has been leading a leading author, a documentarian, public speaker, and a major activist on the events surrounding 9-11 with emphasis on the Pentagon attack and the anthrax attacks which followed, including presentations and tours in the U.S., Europe, and in Canada. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff. You can you can read her about her book, October Surprise, which is a heck of a good read. Um, when you go to the other side of midnight and click on Barbara in the line that says Fast Links to Bios. So Barbara's going to be one of our panelists tonight. Robert Morningstar is back with us. Uh, Robert is a civilian intelligence analyst, an investigative journalist, uh, has a degree in psychotherapy, and currently lives and works in New York City. And the rest of his background is, I mean, he's an expert in Chinese, Chinese culture, history, martial arts. He's a licensed pilot. He runs uh, his own radio show. He's publisher, editor of the UFO Spotlight and UFO Digest. In other words, he's one of those folks I love. A generalist. Um, Let's see, who else is with us? Well, we've got Maria Wheatley. Maria is a second-generation dowser from England. She's live with us tonight, morning, early, early morning, her time. Uh, She was taught by European master dowsers, her late father, and Chinese geomance. Maria is a leading authority on geodetic earth energies, ley lines, and stone circles, and she's an accomplished author of many books on sacred sites and dowsing, and there's a new one just out. She just got back from Egypt, and Egypt is connected bizarrely to the story of the possible illegitimacy of King Charles III, so obviously that's why she is here. Uh... Let's see, who am I missing? I'm I'm missing Ruggiero, but he's not going to be with us. And Georgia Lambert won't be with us until the third hour. So without further ado, let me welcome Barbara to the other side of midnight. And where are you taking us tonight? Can you hear me okay, Richard? We hear you five bye. (laughs) Okay. Well, the first thing I want to say is... um, I'm just really excited this program is finally happening with all of the technical details because I was afraid Charles would die. <laughs> and, and William would be crowned king before it happened. So so I'm, I'm delighted that it's finally happening because it really is important, isn't it? New Mexico is gorgeous, but I'm telling you folks, it's a third world country in terms of infrastructure. And that's probably going to change because of the almost $2 trillion infrastructure bill that was passed, you know, several months ago. But change is minuscule here in the land of enchantment tonight. So I'm thankful that we're on the air. Everything is working and we're dying. I'm dying to hear what you've got for us. (laughs) Well, one other comment to what you just said, and then I'll get into it. It's fascinating, fascinating history that directly affects the United States as well as Great Britain and, and the British Commonwealth. But the other comment, um, just bouncing off what you just said is, well, if we don't raise the debt ceiling, I think not just New Mexico is going to be a third world country. Exactly. Yeah, I think the whole country would be a third world country. Um, You know, just for the record, I don't believe that that they will allow that to happen. Well, I I think that Biden is adamant he's going with the 14th Amendment, despite all the careful circumlocution around it. And then Mm -hmm. it's basically up to the courts. And I cannot imagine the Supreme Court basically, you know, detonating a tactical nuclear war around the world because of some misreading of the Constitution. It's in plain language. Shall not be questioned, period. You cannot give someone a two contradictory statements and insist that they follow both. They have to make a yeah. choice. The president has to make a choice. Either he fulfills all the other laws that Congress passes, or he fulfills this one and trashes all the other laws. To me, it seems like a very simple legal choice. Well, if he does go that route and doesn't do a final negotiation by June 1st, 
and it goes to the Supreme Court. He could take it to the Supreme Court on an emergency basis. It would be hard for me to imagine that this court, at least six of whom, the justices, call themselves originalists. Yes, yes. Textualists. It is clear in the clear language of the Constitution that that shall not happen. Well, the so, thing that I think is going to happen is that Biden is going to invoke the 14th. And then, of course, the Republicans, the, the weird out there minority that would well, want to kill the country, obviously, they're going to object. And then what will happen is the court will have to step in with a stay, which says the U.S. can continue to pay its debts while the court mulls this conundrum. And then after a decent interval, they're going to come down in favor of the 14th Amendment. There's no other legal route that I can see. But that stay is critical because it means there will be no interregnum where no one gets paid while the court tries to sort this out. Right. Well, the Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, has stated that if June 1st comes and there isn't an agreement, that it's not that all debts won't be paid, but the Treasury and herself in particular, they're going to choose which debts to pay. Yeah, which means under the Constitution, the president has to decide to obey this law from Congress, but not that law. And this appropriation, and and, and, and there's no line item veto anywhere in, in the uh, Constitution. In fact, it's been ruled against, I think, at least twice by the court. Yeah, yeah no, there's no line item veto. Many presidents have especially Republican presidents have tried to get it, yep, but yep. Congress won't give it to him. <laughs> Congress is uh, rightly jealous of its power when it decides to. So anyway, <clears throat> to get into this fascinating, fascinating history. Um, well, let's, just, uh, let's, let's start with this. What got you, a solid American citizen, member of the Washington establishment back then, you know, a player in the whole Reagan transformative, you know, administrations, what got you interested in the arcane history of the British monarchy? <laughs> well, I was actually going to start with the answer to that question. So that's uh, that was great timing. So, <clears throat> believe it or not, I started on this whole uh, quest. And we got about a minute before the break. Oh. oh. So well, tease, should we wait? Tease, should we tease, wait? tease vigorously. Tease. Okay. <laughs> all right. It all started... When my husband, my late husband, uh, Dr. Richard St. Clair Murray, received a box of documents from his father that had belonged to his grandfather, who was a British Army captain. And in that box, there we learned that his grandfather had attended the coronation ceremony right after... Um, Queen Victoria died. So that's the teaser. Okay. Um, all right. We, we can kind of hold it there. What I'm going to do tonight is I, I thought we would take some of the music, the really amazing music they played during the coronation, and use it as our bumper music tonight. So here's our first cut. I think this is Zadok the Priest, written by Handel. Music, official music for the coronation of King Charles III. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Tune in to listen to Richard. 
Gypsy Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, May 21st. Everyone, I want you to realize, because Robert did me a great favor last night in doing the mathematics live on the air, tonight is the 62nd anniversary, literally, to the night, since President John F. Kennedy set Americans and the United States and Apollo on its inevitable history-changing course to the surface of the moon. 62 years ago, May 21st, tonight. Okay, Barbara, go for it. Barbara? Okay, that's great introduction music. <laughs> that it? was the that was the music Zadok the priest that was played uh, during the anointing of King Charles, which is the really probably the most important part of the ceremony that they claim links the monarch to God. Um, the rest of it, the crowning and all of that, is is more mon- more temporal. <clears throat> but that is the music that was played. What what I found music. so weird is that that part, the anointing with sacred oils and all that, and the you know dedication by Handel to the priest, goes way back to ancient times. I I believe it's uh, Israeli uh, kingship, and I believe the the weirdest part was it was all done in secret. They brought out these huge, gorgeously colored velvet screens, and they put them all around the throne. So this embalming, this this uh, sacred oil anointing was all done out of sight of any of the people in the cathedral, anybody on television, anybody else in the church. It was done in secret, which kind of is the imprimatur of the idea of this relationship between a monarch and the deity. Yes, yes, and just before that happened, Charles walked in with magnificent robes, and just before that happened, part of the ceremony is that those robes are removed, and he was just in like a white cotton nightshirt when he then sat on the throne, and those panels were, screens were brought around him, four screens on either side. Obviously, they had cameras on the ceiling, but those were not being played live so right. that no one in the church except for the um the archbishop of canterbury who um who anointed him with this oil that had in fact come from um <clears throat> uh, the mount of olives in israel uh-huh. the actual words of this ceremony go back almost a thousand years to they were first used effectively verbatim uh, by William the Conqueror, so you, you've talked. You're talking about about a thousand-year-old ceremony, done effectively the way it's been done for a millennium, which is pretty incredible. So, so back to your question, 
you know, how is a nice farm girl like me get into a <laughs> history like this, right? Right. How did how did Dorothy get into Oz, right? Yep. Well, yep. Okay. <clears throat> well, as I mentioned before the break, I got on this quest in this most amazing moment that is burned into my memory. So if reincarnation is real, I'm sure that I'll remember this through all my future lifetimes. Because um, I was, at the time, I was engaged to Dr. Murray, and he uh, received uh, the word that his father, Ron Murray, who lived in Colorado, had died, and he had remarried some years before. Um, and so Richard didn't know his his uh, mother-in-law or whatever. Um, but his he learned from her that, that her husband, Richard's father, had died, and that she was standing a box, Gazootype. Uh, she was sending Richard a box, which did arrive in the mail. It was about two and a half feet by two and a half feet square. It was a pretty big box, pretty heavy. And it arrived at our home in Pacific Grove, California, here in the Monterey Peninsula, where I still live. And um, in the box, she had told Richard by phone or letter in advance that there were going to be all the documents she could find that pertained to both his father and his father's father, Richard's grandfather. So this this box came. And Richard really didn't know who he was. Not really. Until he opened the box. And what we learned, putting aside Richard's father, who is not the interesting party here, it's Richard's grandfather. Richard's grandfather was born in Dune, Scotland, in the heart of Perthshire. Okay. Not too far from Scone, which is where the Stone of Destiny originally resided in Scotland. And we'll get to that in a moment. So I'm going to put aside the rest of the story about Richard's grandfather, and we've already done a show on that, but it would be a tangent. The most important document in this box was a coronation program for Queen Victoria's successor. I think his name was Bertie. But anyway, Queen Victoria's successor. And this coronation program was beautiful. It was like it had been preserved perfectly for, uh, at that point, that was 1992 or 93, mm -hmm. 93, I believe. So it had been preserved for almost 100 years in its original pristine uh, format. And... Um, it was like, if you can imagine, an 8.5 by 11 folded over vertically on heavy stock, white stock, and the front of it explained, of course, what it was, that it was the coronation program of Queen Victoria's successor. And when you opened it up so that it was with a fold, vertical fold in the middle, um, it was a just very um, vertical, narrow, uh, two, two sheets together. And the very first paragraph in the upper left-hand corner with this beautiful, illuminated first letter, it said in words, it said in words that the authority and legitimacy of the king, in other words, the monarch, you can be a queen, but the authority and legitimacy of the monarch who is about to be crowned in this ceremony comes from the stone in the chair. Mm. And I, I did a double take because I didn't. You, mean, you mean the stone under the throne that, that he will or she will sit in when they're being coronated. Correct. And we're going to see a photograph of that in just a moment when we go to my items. But the coronation program got me on this path because I did an incredible double take. <laughs> I handed it to Richard. I said, Am I reading this right? And then he did a double take. And because we are told that the monarchs achieve their authority by the bloodline, right? Right. And by, by the uh, who went before them in this line that goes back to God knows who, that it has to do with the family line. The royal family bloodline said nothing about that. Zero. Zilch. Has to wait, do wait, 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 wait. Which means any commoner who somehow could get coronated on that stone would be automatically under this, quote, law, K. 
King. No, no. Um, no? And I need to slightly correct your opener on that. All right. There's a, there's a fundamental difference between the monarch or the king or queen of England and of the British Empire and, and of Great Britain. Okay, Great Britain means England plus Scotland, most most fundamentally, but also Wales and also Northern Ireland. Okay, and then in addition to that, there are the British, there are the Commonwealth countries. Right, um, fifty or so, something like that. Um, Canada, New Zealand, and a bunch of small ones. Okay, Australia. But, yeah, well, Australia. No. That's not a small one at all. Um, <laughs> But but those are those are the main ones. But of, but of all of those, the one that matters the most to the very concept of Great Britain is Scotland united with England. Okay, so so he could be he could he could become the King of England, you know, sitting on any stone in the garden. That isn't what matters. As you're going to see now from this history. The British royal family, ever since 1296, every single king and queen of England and then Great Britain, which then included Scotland with the unification of Britain and Scotland, every single monarch since 1296 has been crowned on what they believe is the real stone of destiny. And we're going to get into what that is, but the bottom line is that the Stone of Destiny, also known as the Stone of Scone, because it, in Scotland, and they've had a history we're going to get into before Scotland, but when it first came to Scotland in, as I recall, 800-something, the first king to be crowned on it was in 800-something at Scone Abbey, uh, near Scone Palace in the heart of the Highlands in Perthshire, Scotland. But in 1296... The King of England, only the King of England then, was Edward I. He was a very vicious king, and he was um, he was known by the Scots as the Hammer of the Scots because he was so brutal to them. And he sent his cavalry, his you know horse horse army, uh, up to Scone Abbey, and demanded the stone on which the Scottish kings, as kings, Scott. A little bit early. Go ahead. So no. in 1296, the King of England sent his army up to basically steal the Stone of Destiny on which Scottish kings had been crowned for many hundreds of years prior to that, at least 400 years. And the reason he wanted it was basically to, it would be like, uh, you know, it would be like uh, an army from Spain going into England and going into the Tower of London and taking the crown jewels. Um, it, it takes the symbols of authority uh, away from the existing rulers and sticks it to the Scots. So that's what, that's what Edward I did in 1296. However, and here's what's important, and everybody in Scotland knows this, and it's also part of the Scottish history, official history, that in 1296, the Bishop of Scone, where all of these Scottish kings have been crowned on this stone, and we're going to get into why that stone was so important to crown the Scottish kings on them in a moment. But the Bishop of Scone learned that the cavalry of Edward I was coming, and he switched the stone. He took the real Stone of Destiny, which has this history way before the Scots, as we will see going all the way back to ancient Egypt, to the time almost certainly of Akhenaten, Nefertiti, and their crown princess, Meritaten, who became known as Skota, after whom Scotland to this day is named. The word Scotland comes from an ancient queen, first, first crown princess, and then queen of ancient Egypt. Okay, so in 1296, the Bishop of Scone switched the stones and gave a fake stone, but, you know, led the cavalry to believe that it was the real thing. The cavalry took it back to Edward I, who had the coronation chair that Charles was crowned on on the 9th of May, 
That's the very chair. It's called St. Edward's chair. And that chair was made. It's made of oak wood. And it was made in 1296-1297 for a single purpose, to house that stone, which is directly under the seat. And was directly under the seat of the coronation chair for every single coronation from Edward II, who was the son of Edward I, after Edward I died, Ed, from Edward II all the way through Charles, that chair, Edward, St. Edward's chair, with the stone that they, that they think is the real stone of destiny, right under the seat, there's a special compartment that it perfectly fits in, that every single monarch has been crowned on that stone on the claim that their authority and legitimacy resides from the stone. And that is the authority and legitimacy of the monarch of Great Britain as opposed to just the king or queen of England. Ah. Okay. All right. So, so now so, we're going So this to... is a distinction with a difference. <laughs> yes, it's a very important difference. Thank you. We're talking about Great Britain. And many people will remember, I believe it was in 20... 2014, not that long ago, about nine years ago, um, going on 10, going on a decade, the, um, the Scottish citizens, the Scottish voters voted on an independence uh, referendum. And it didn't win. It, it only got about 45 to 55%. It didn't win, but they want to be independent. And especially since Brexit, Scotland voted 60-65% to stay with the EU, and they're very, very upset that Brexit happens. So when Brexit happens, which was dictated from London, from Westminster actually, um, where the Parliament is also, um, where the coronations and the Parliament are, uh, since Brexit was dictated from London, the Scots have more and more wanted to become independent, and at some point there will be another referendum. If there were a referendum for independence that was allowed to happen by Westminster, which is a big question, but if it were allowed to happen and Scotland became independent, fully independent, they're quasi-independent now. They've ever since Robert the Bruce uh, defeated Edward II at Bannockburn, Edward I's son, uh, I think that was 1314 in Scotland, at Bannockburn, Scotland, a, bat a major battle. Scottish law and parliament have been independent of England, but they're not wholly independent of England. The hmm. Scots want to be fully independent. Okay, so so the, the most important thing to know here is that the real stone never went down to be in the chair in Westminster. However, Edward I assumed that it was... And every king and queen... So, wait, wait. You mean back then they didn't think of counterfeits and plots within plots and one group lying to another? In other words, they, there was no way he could check, test it? Well, that's a good question. Um, I didn't want to get off into uh, another tangent, but I guess I have to. We have three hours is, of tangents. Come on. Well, that, that's true. <laughs> There's so much to cover. Um but yes, um, Edward the Edward the First did have his spies up in Scone, and he was informed that there had been a switch, and so oh. it wasn't long before he sent even a bigger cavalry army up, and demanded the real stone from the Bishop of Scone, who refused, refused, and in order to save face, apparently, the best that we know from history, in order to save face. Um, he, his cavalry came back without another stone, and Edward I and II, all the way through Charles, they've always pretended that they had the real one, but they don't, and they haven't since 1296. So how so, many in the in crowd, if, if this is the legitimacy of the monarchy for Great Britain, right? why hasn't anybody like in Scotland blown the whistle and said, hey, well, they you... Have. Oh, they have. I could. I could. But that would delegitimize the whole idea of the uh, of the uh, uh, you know concept of Great Britain. No, of course. Um, the the uh, some of the leaders, uh, in fact, the head of the Scottish National Party, Alex Salmond, who was head of the Scottish National Party two uh, first ministers ago, before Nicola Sturgeon and before the current one, 
um, uh, he uh, came out, you know, in the uh, in the Scot the Scotsman or one of the major papers in Edinburgh, saying precisely that. Um, and I've actually got in one of my items uh, an article um, that was published in one of the major papers in England or Scotland or both um, just uh, before the coronation, saying precisely that. Um, that it's you know it's 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 not a legitimate uh, it's not a, a legitimate claim to the throne of Scotland. Um, so maybe we should go through my items because I can go through them quickly and sure. It, no, again, I, I put, we don't need I to put, do this quickly. We have plenty of time to give people a real three D picture of why this is important. Yeah, I know. I, I I hate to take up too much time with other guests on the show, but but I'll 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 yeah, do. But the I'll other guests it. are going to be commenting mostly on what you've unearthed, and that's you okay. Know, All so, right. So. All right. Okay. So, um, and by the way, Robert Morningstar um, recently did a two-hour interview with me in even more detail than we'll probably be able to go in here, and um, I have asked that the link to that Rumble uh, video. Uh, be added to my items. I, I asked Keith to do that, so hopefully that will be I will will be um, my item one or one A pretty soon, added to it. Okay, so if everybody goes to Barbara's items, and you want to tell people how to do that, or? yeah, you go on the internet if you're listening. You go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our website. Click on tonight's banner, which has that elegant portrait of Charles. That will take you to the guest page. <clears throat> Under the guest page, you will find. Fast links to items. Click on Barbara's name. That will take you to her items. Okay. So when you see Barbara's, Barbara's items, I want you to look first at number two. Then we'll go back to number one. <clears throat> so number two, this is a photograph inside Westminster Abbey, which is the big cathedral there where the coronation took place on the 9th of May, on Saturday the 9th of May, just passed. And you're going to see there's St. Edward's chair. That's the coronation chair that's been used ever since 1296. Actually, it was first used for the coronation of Edward II, Edward I's son, a few years after after 1296, not shortly after 1296. It was first used. And if you see in that chair, um, there's the seat of the chair. And then right under the seat of the chair, there is an open area. To the right of the chair in the photograph, you will see what they claim is the real stone of destiny. Now, of course, it's this substituted fake one. Now, what's very interesting <clears throat> is that in, in 1996, on November 30th, as I recall anyway, November of 1996, believe it or not, under an order by Queen Elizabeth II, recent queen, she ordered that the Stone of Destiny be returned to Scotland for the first time since 1296, and it was. And we're going to see in a few um, in a few photos down below. We're going to see the return of the stone back in 1996 to Scotland. But the point here is is that that stone that that Charles claims is the real one, and that the British royal family claims is the real stone of destiny, the stone of Skoda. Um, that was, there was a big procession up to Edinburgh Castle where it was then returned to Westminster to be stuck in under the seat of the chair just for the coronation and now it's back in Scotland. So there was a treaty that was made between the Scottish National Party and the Scots in general, and the Crown, back before 1996, that the Queen would allow the stone to be permanently back in Scotland as long as the Scots agreed, and they did at that time, that whenever there was a coronation, that the stone would be temporarily returned to Westminster to be stuck under the seat of St. Edward's chair and then sent back to Scotland, which it has been. Okay, so so you can see that stone there waiting to be put in the chair for the coronation. All right, so now go up to my one A, and um, you're 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 seeing part of the ceremony of the return of the stone from Scotland back to uh, Westminster Abbey, Westminster Cathedral, and uh, those are that's very interesting. 
those two guards on either side of the main guard uh, in front of the substituted fake stone, um, they are wearing uh, a jerkin, uh, which is uh, effectively the, um, the, the flag of union of the four parts of Great Britain. And those four parts are England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Okay, so this is a big deal. It's, it's what I'm telling you. Number three. Okay, um, I'm not going to be able to go into the details, but everybody needs to read this article. <clears throat> there is overwhelming, compelling proof that this is not the real stone of destiny that um, Edward I sent his cavalry up to get from Scone Abbey in 1296. There are many lines of physical proof, but this is just one of them. You read this article. Um, another physical line of proof is that the one that he was crowned on the other day that's in uh, photo 1A above, or photo um, two, uh, yeah, photo two uh, above, um, that stone uh, has been um, the fake one, the substituted one. That stone has been carefully analyzed, and it is. There's no question, but that it is simply sandstone from a quarry in the area of Scone uh, mm. Abbey. Okay, so because the original stone came from we can infer, and we'll get to that, uh, came from Egypt with Princess Skoda and Queen Skoda of ancient Egypt. Um, obviously, that's yet another line. But <clears throat> amazingly, number three is that um, back in um, a number of years ago, uh, in a peat bog, and the amazing thing is that peat um, uh, can preserve uh, can preserve wood. Uh, that kind of surprised me. But anyway, there was a... And, and it can preserve bodies. And bodies, yes, right. So there was a box that was found. And in the box uh, was an object on which there was carved uh, the image of the stone back in the 500s, the 500s of the real stone. And it looks nothing like what you're looking at on the left, which is, of course, uh, the substituted fake stone. Okay, so there are many, many lines of evidence. And the Knights Templar, by the way, in Scotland, I was told in person by the number three officer of the Scottish National Party back in July of 1994 in his home in Scotland over Scotch, I was told that the Knights Templars still have the real stone and that they will bring out the real stone once Scotland achieves her full independence, which could be very soon. All right, number four. Now, this is, this just has, uh, it's kind yeah, of- Yeah, we've got about 30 seconds, so why don't okay. we wait, okay? Okay. This All is right. absolutely, fa I mean, I have obviously a thousand questions, but I didn't want to, interrupt um so i'll save them until we come back this is absolutely fascinating barbara's leading us through the foundation background for the legitimacy of the current monarch of the british empire the concept of great britain apart from the concept of the king of england you're on the other side of midnight my name is richard c hoagland and again this is uh the King Shall Rejoice by William Boyce, music from the coronation of His Majesty King Charles III. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 plus shows that we have done. 
Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.